you could turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and also I'm going to give you a fair warning because it might take a while to find it, find Joel chapter 2. That's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. So if you want to turn to that, it's a tiny little book and it might take a minute to find that. Um, so i got a quick question before I get started. Um, has anyone ever been somewhere where you have a weirdo do what weirdos do and you're in a room where some nut bar just kind of stands up and, and draws a bizarre amount of attention to themselves and then goes off in a strange manner making everybody else in the room feel uncomfortable? Anybody, does that resonate with anyone ever been? We call that the lawyer family Christmas. Um, <laughs> that's, that's just holidays in my family. Um, you know, there's, there's never one that uh, goes by where you don't have a drunk Uncle Dennis. And, you know, on the ride home, you're just like, well, that, that was strange and uncomfortable for everybody and it's the kind of thing where you're just sitting there and you're just shoveling your food into your mouth like <laughs> make no eye contact make no eye contact well uh, it made me think about this wedding that uh, I was a part of years ago where after the best man speech a family member asked for the microphone which in itself was odd but this family was from another culture so I thought Maybe this is some cultural expression that I don't understand. And then he spent the next 20 minutes airing his grievances about every member of the family and then sharing everything he didn't like about the wedding and the reasons that he wasn't in support of the couple that got married. And uh, they just sat there in astonished disbelief and everybody else at the wedding was just standing there in shock and awe at what Marcy and I have come to affectionately know as the speech. Um, and it was awkward for everybody. All I could do was grab the mic afterwards and be like, all right, who's ready to party? <laughs> and people are like, uh, you know, the moment died. This is, <laughs> this is strange for everyone. Well, that, that's kind of like what you have going on here in the rest of Acts chapter 2. Something very unusual and uncomfortable just happened in verses 1 through 13. And it was something that was very uncommon. And the people are just looking around as these tongues and different languages are being distributed. And people have this attitude of kind of like, well, what was that? And, and just to put it in historical perspective, we are still uncomfortable about this passage after 2,000 years of our best minds and theologians studying it and trying to interpret it and disseminate it to congregations. I had several people tell me last week that they were really curious how I was going to handle this passage because it's a very confusing passage to them. So if it's that case still, Imagine what it must have been like if you had been there and had absolutely no historical context for the events that were taking place. It was probably a weird mix of exciting, uncomfortable, awkward, confusing, and anything on the spectrum in between. And with those kinds of moments, you really have two alternatives. Just put your head down, 
stare at your food, and try not to be the one that looks anybody else in the eye first, or else you're the person that has to speak. Or somebody can be the nut job that stands up and says, well, that was weird. Can we address the pink elephant in the middle of the room and let's talk about it? And that's exactly the approach that Peter took in the rest of the text that we're going to be looking at. He stands up and he's the spokesman for what's taking place at this event. And you really have two things going on in this text. You have an unlikely person. And there's several reasons why Peter was an unlikely person to be delivering the message and being the spokesman for what's going on. And you have an unlikely passage. Peter goes to a pretty obscure place in the Old Testament to make sense of what's going on. And one of the things, before we jump in, just remember that Peter did not have the advantage of having a New Testament to take people to, to be able to explain the events of that day. All he had was the Old Testament, and even that, he wouldn't have known it as the Old Testament, because if you don't have a New Testament, you're not going to call the previous one old, because you don't have a point of reference to make that one old, because there's no new. So, he preaches a sermon... Thank you. <laughs> and he uses what he has to try to make events of the place that are taking place in their midst. And he preaches one of the most powerful sermons in the history of the world. Um, we're going to dig into it in a minute, but as we continue into our mini-series on Acts 2, as we go through the book of Acts, and we look at this series on power, purpose, and preaching of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be looking at Spirit-empowered preaching, and I'm going to break it into a couple of parts. This week, focusing on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take you through a study, through an unlikely passage, the passage that was used at this unusual event. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Joel 2, and we'll get back to Acts eventually, so that we can use the passage that Peter used and have a deeper understanding of why Peter used it. This is not going to be an application-oriented message like some other messages, but instead, we are going to be gleaning as much as we can of the theology of the Spirit that Peter was building here so that we can use this as an undergirding or a framework as we continue to look at a theology of the Spirit in the book of Acts. So I'll look with, uh, before I get into Joel, I'm just going to read verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2 in Acts, pray, and then we'll dig in. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in the passage that you'll be looking at. Jesus, I pray that as we look at the outpouring of the Spirit, that we would sense a manifest presence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Hide me behind your cross so that my frailty would not hinder your Spirit's work. Work mightily in the hearts of the people. Let us approach this text with humility and by your grace minister to the hearts in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to be looking at a lot of theology of the outpouring of the Spirit, but just the fact 
that this man named Peter was the spokesman here is a portrait of the outpouring of the Spirit. Remember that Luke wrote Acts as sort of a part two of the first book that he wrote, the Gospel of Luke, the account of Jesus when he walked the earth, and now this is the account of God the Holy Spirit and his events in the church. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Peter was not being celebrated as an example of gospel boldness and courage. When we see Peter for what he was apart from the Spirit, he was a scared little coward who would rather run away and hide than stand by his best friend, teacher, and mentor in his moment of need. Peter was the kind of guy who talked the big game. I mean, remember when he said, Lord, even if everybody abandons you, I will fight until the end. Remember when the Roman legion is coming in and he pulls the old, hold me back, man, hold me back, because I'm going to start whooping on him if you don't. And I mean, that's Peter, apart from the Holy Spirit. He's this guy that talks a big game, but when rubber meets the road, his cowardice would kick in. He was the kind of guy that would pick a fight and then run away. And at his low moment, he curses off a little girl for suggesting that he might know Jesus. That's how cowardly he had gotten. But we see something special happening. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was turning a coward into a courageous man of God. The Spirit is still operating in the same way, family. Left to my own, I am a coward who will always choose the path of least resistance. I mean, bar none. I'm going to take the easy way. Why not take the easy way left to my own devices? Why not take the way that, that adds to my own self-preservation? I certainly would not be in front of a bunch of you people while you're staring at me, because it's freaky. I mean, you don't, you're not standing here looking at all of you, looking at me. That's weird. I wouldn't want to do that apart from the Spirit. But I know what the Spirit has called me to do. But the Spirit takes a coward by nature and transforms him to a man or a woman of courage. And that is important. And we're going to come back. To it. So Peter begins to explain what's going on. And just as a total tangent, I love that his excuse for them not being drunk is that it's only the third hour of the day. <laughs> Obviously, the Irish were not amongst the <laughs> nations that were represented at Pentecost. Um, can I say that because I'm Irish? <laughs> I mean, does that make, is, is, that, is that all right? But I mean, like, uh, third hour of the day, um, it, that doesn't mean three o'clock in the morning. In their culture, 6 a.m. was the first hour of the day. So this means nine o'clock in the morning. And he's like, they can't be drunk. It's 9 a.m. I'm like, right. <laughs> they can't be. <laughs> so he uses the second chapter of the book of Joel to explain what's going on. So I want to study how this passage fits into Joel and why the Holy Spirit had Peter choose this passage. It says, starting in verse 28, the passage that Peter quotes right in Acts 2, verbatim, except for one word. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my, flesh, my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... 
Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom call on the name of the Lord. So in this text, there is this prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in the chapter of chapter 2 of Joel, the chapter focuses on a restoration that is promised that will occur in the land of Israel, both a physical renewal and ultimately a spiritual renewal of the people. And then as you get to the end of the chapter, we begin to get into how that's going to take place. You see, God is going to restore the brokenness that had just torn through the land by sin. There's a beautiful verse earlier in the chapter, one that I've used to encourage many people over the years where it says God will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten and I've sat with so many people where the locust has just torn through and just caused wreckage and destruction through their lives whether it be through addictions or just poor decisions or just the fact that sin makes you stupid I mean that's just what happens and he's saying hey that wreckage the Lord is going to restore the years that has been eaten up by that wreckage. I stand to you a human testament to the fact that God is still doing that today. And you see how He is going to restore that wreckage. And it's through the outpouring of His Spirit. And there's an interesting word that occurs here in Joel, which is why I want to take you back to the passage that he quotes that Peter skips in Acts that we really need to understand if we're going to understand the outpouring of God's Spirit. And that's the word afterwards here in verse 28. The text says it will come about afterwards that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. So it will not occur until after something has happened. So that leads you to ask the question, what question? After what, right? If it's going to happen afterwards, then I want to know after what if I want to experience the outpouring of the Spirit. So you have to go back to the previous verses to understand, which again is why I thought that I was going to take you all the way up to chapter 41. I mean, verse 41 in this chapter, and the Spirit laughed at me and said, um, you're going to be lucky if you make it through this little portion of Joel 2. Um, you have to go back to verse 13, really. The outpouring of the Spirit doesn't happen until people return to an understanding of the necessity and centrality of the Gospel. This is true in the original passage in Joel. This is true in the quotation of it in Acts. You don't have the outpouring of the Spirit in verse 28 until you see what occurs in verse 13 where he tells them, rend your hearts and not your garments. Up until then, there was a whole lot of garment rending going on. But he's saying, I'm not after that. I'm after my work to become pervasive and to come and pervade your hearts so that you're rending your hearts. And it's after that that you're going to see this occurrence that you're waiting for. Meaning that they did not just 
pretend to appear broken anymore like they used to, but they were actually led by the Spirit to this beautiful place of repentance, and their repentance drove them to the Gospel. See, our repentance can do two things. So often I've heard the teaching on repentance that tells you, just stare at that sin. Understand that sin. Know that sin. Mortify that sin. I've never seen anybody holy by staring at your sin. Repentance is made you to look, is supposed to make you look at your sin so that it takes that gaze and says, I need to look at Jesus. And it caused them to look at their Savior. If you need any proof on this, 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas the world produces, worldly grief produces death. So there's this sort of regret-filled sorrow that doesn't produce anything of health. And man, have I just heard sermon after sermon that preaches on that world-filled sorrow in churches. Say, man, just stare at your sin. Let's just focus on repentance, people. Repentance is a means to an end, and that end is Jesus. Repentance is not an end to itself. But this is the kind of sorrow I knew for years. I would regret doing things because I had realized that I had caused pain to myself or I had caused pain to other people. And what happens after you realize that you had caused pain to yourself or others? Shame inevitably kicks in. So, a lot of people who are skilled with their tongue but bereft of the gospel are able to just needlework that shame that you intuitively feel. And if you come here already feeling shame and then I publicly shame you from the pulpit, well then we have a cataclysmic event and we can almost change, but it's deceptive because it's not. That's not repentance leading to life. What they're talking about here and especially the way that it's used in Acts is repentance where you see your sin and it drives you to the person of Jesus Christ. And we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what we see? We see a God that is gracious. He has taken away our punishment and He has caused it to fall on Jesus Christ instead. He's merciful. He's not given us what we deserve, but He has given us grace instead. He's slow to anger. We are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of the King instead. And the judgment has gone from ourselves and the Father has placed it on the person of Christ. He's abounding in steadfast love. He loved us so much that He gave His own Son so that through Him we might have eternal life. It's relenting of disaster, it says in another place, that we no longer stand accused because the disaster of our sin has fallen completely on Jesus Christ, on the disaster of the cross. So that's why there's this word afterwards in 28, and it's so critical. It's not until after they had been driven to the love that we only find in Jesus that we're able to experience the outpouring of God's Spirit. And as with most truths in the Scriptures, this is true on an individual level, and this is also true on a family level. This has, this has implications that go beyond just the individual. We, we do not have the Spirit's life uh, work in our life without a return to the Gospel. Uh, this was true in God and His kindness 
led us to salvation. This is also true of our continued growth, also known by the five-cent word sanctification. If our sanctification is not gospel-centered, then the only other conclusion is that our sanctification is man-centered. And man-centered sanctification produces self-centered worshipers. If you hear nothing else, get that this morning. Man-centered sanctification produces self-centered worshipers. And guess what? God is not going to pour out His Spirit to enable me to worship me. I do that just fine on my own without His Spirit. But there's also huge corporate implications to this. Churches meander off of mission all the time. It is very common for the church to become about the church. I, I had a tagline that the Lord gave me when I first started planting churches, and it's because I was sick of sitting in church talking about church. And that's the point of the church is not to point to the church. It's the point to Jesus. So what you have at that point is an institution that exists to make the institution exist. And that's when we feel the dryness of it. And that's when we feel the coldness of it. When a body becomes gripped by the gospel again, then God begins to pour out His Spirit on that body. And may that be so of this church. Amen? And unfortunately, when a church begins to move away from the centrality of the gospel, they usually begin to look to other things other than the gospel to try to fix the problem that was created by departing from the gospel. So instead of turning back to the gospel, they say, hey, look at the program that that church is doing. Maybe if we just have 50 programs like that, then we'll begin to have a work of the Spirit in our church. Programs are not a work of the Spirit, folks. I wish churches got that. You have so many busy Christians that are devoting their lives to upholding programs that wouldn't know the Spirit if He slapped them upside the head. So what results is a bunch of what Joel earlier in the chapter refers to as garment rending when we need to rend our hearts and not our garments if we want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it's not only true individually and corporately, it's also true historically. So that's why Peter's quoting this passage at Pentecost when God fulfilled this prophecy by pouring out His Spirit on the church. And now you can turn back to Acts chapter 2 and that's where I'll spend the rest of our time here this morning. So when did this happen? When did the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happen historically? It happened right after Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and He rose again from the grave. So historically, the fulfillment of this prophecy for God to pour out His Spirit happened after the church embraced the Gospel. And here's where it gets practical. People always want to talk about an outpouring of the Spirit. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they say, man, I want to see. I want to feel. I want to experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not dogging on that. That's good, man. That's a righteous desire for you to desire that. People are hungry for it, and for good reason. I get that. Who wouldn't want to see an outpouring of the manifest presence 
of God's Spirit. But what most are people, people are talking about is a feeling that they associate with they think an outpouring of the Spirit actually means. They think that when there's this outpouring of the Spirit that you feel something, and you probably do. For is this feeling and the intensity that they associate with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Most people's theology of the Holy Spirit comes more from New Age mysticism than it does from the Bible. And that's why it's so important to trace the ideas of the outpouring of the Spirit through the entirety of Scriptures in order to build a framework and a theology of the Spirit to be able to use to undergird the theology that we'll take with us through the book of Acts, because this is an area where people get goofy. People talk about the pouring of the Spirit as if it's some sort of force or energy or life force that's poured on the church. But the Holy Spirit is not an energy. He's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity to be exact. And as we looked at last week, He came with a purpose. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit always, both theologically and historically, is preceded by people magnifying the Son of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We learn in the Gospel of Jesus the Holy Spirit's function in the Trinity was to magnify the Son of God. Where is Jesus put more on display than through the precious message of the Gospel? And the rest of the text that we see that when God's people are driven to the Gospel, then God's promised that He would pour out His Spirit. Again, look at where it says... Um, skip down on, uh, to verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, even my male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens, and the signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. I want to look at why this text was quoted by Peter at Pentecost. Friends, in our remaining time this morning, I want to point out that when the Spirit was poured out on the church, it was something that was noticeable. When the Spirit was poured out, miraculous took place. Here in Joel, he's talking about dreams and prophecies that were going to take place. When Peter quoted it in Acts, it was right after the disciples were speaking in these unknown languages that began to take place. But both times that it's quoted, it's making the point that the Holy Spirit is enabling the church to do something that it previously was unable to do apart from the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And that's convicting to me because I think of how much ministry I've done over the years that I could have just as easily have done in my flesh as done in the Spirit. And I'm glad that that's convicting. Because I don't want to do this in my own power. I don't want to do this in my own flesh. And hopefully you guys can give an amen to that. Do you agree? I, I, want, I don't want to see any of what Redeemer Fellowship does be done in their power if 
the Spirit is not in it, then we don't want to be a part of it. Theologically, we believe in the miraculous gifts. We don't believe that they were just limited to the early church. We still believe that those miraculous gifts are in operation in God's church. And as I said last week, there are many weak arguments that try to state that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased. And they're just that. They're weak arguments. You would think by visiting most evangelical churches that we've created a new trinity. They've replaced Father, Son, and Holy Ghost with Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Why are people so afraid of the Holy Ghost? Why do people so rarely talk about the ghost? Why are so few sermons about the ghost? Why are there so many solid evangelical biblical resources about the outpouring of the ghost? Why do people have to get goofy when the ghost enters into the conversation and into the equation? I think that one of the reasons people get weird is that people talk about these things, often want to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit just so they can experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When we see in the text that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was given just so that they can make much of Jesus, not so that we could have a Holy Ghost dance party going on. It's not so that you could do the Holy Ghost hokey pokey, if anybody is familiar with that awesome YouTube video. If you're not, familiarize yourself with it as homework. Read through Acts. Every time the Spirit is poured out, it's because people are making much of Jesus and people want to continue to make much of Jesus. Friends, we need to see, as Paul said, that the Gospel did not come to us in word only, but in manifestations of power. People need to see the power of restored lives. People need to see the power of restored communities. People need to see the power of being able to supernaturally love the unlovable. Because as Jesus said over and over in the Gospels, anybody can love the lovable. It takes something supernatural to love the unlovable. People need to see that God is still working through the miraculous. It does not take power to play church, folks. And every time we slip into playing church, we only confirm the world's opinions about us. That we're a powerless social club that get together to pat ourselves on the back for being slightly more moral than the rest of the world outside of these walls. I decided a long time ago that I want nothing of that powerless religion that misrepresents the name of Jesus. That's why I have no patience for people that want to come up to me and play church. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to invest my life in something. And I hope that you are too. And I'm not going to invest my life in playing church. There's a million of them out there if somebody wants to play church. We can either play church or we can join Jesus and build a kingdom. You decide. I assure you that I'm not making too much of this because it says right in the text that when God pours out His Spirit, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that excite anybody? 
Does that, does that motivate anybody to sing? That's what we're in this for. We're not in here to just sit and talk about paint colors and carpet colors and the methodology of how we do things. That's not what church is about. Church is not so that we can get a bunch of skilled professionals to sit around and talk about how to be more skilled professionals and how to play church on an expert level, which is why it's so fascinating that Jesus picked no experts when he put together his church. Peter does something really interesting that's confused me for years, and it's confused theologians way more capable of me. When he quotes the passage in Joel, notice that he doesn't just quote the part about the outpouring of the Spirit. That would be so comfortable for me and so easy to preach. There's passages in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah in particular, where the prophet is talking about the first coming and the second coming of Christ all in one prophecy there's not a distinction made between the first and the second coming in that prophecy. But when the passage is quoted by the New Testament author, what they'll do is just quote the part of it that had to do with the first coming of Jesus and say, okay, this is fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled this in your midst as he walked the earth. But they leave out the part about the second coming of Christ because it's not relevant to the subject matter that they're talking about. Peter could have done exactly that. He could have just said, hey, there's this prophecy that says that the Spirit's going to be poured out. It's right here in Joel. So right here it says, I shall pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And he could have laughed at that, and that would have been a perfect beginning and way for his sermon. But he didn't do that. He could have just quoted the part that was relevant and said, this is occurring in your midst. But he didn't do that. But instead, Peter quotes the whole section from Joel, including these crazy things like cataclysmic events going on in the sky and on the earth. And he says, these things that are signs of the end times are happening in your midst. And says that what is going on is a sign that the coming of the day of the Lord, which the Bible refers to the second coming of Christ and the end of days, but this wasn't the end of days. There have been 2,000 years that have gone on since Peter preached the sermon. So what's the deal here? Was Peter wrong? Did Peter just get a little bit excited? Was he just hoping that these would be the final days? So he's preaching this sermon in hope against hope, saying, my Jesus, he's going to come back, and we're going to see these things. Did he actually get it wrong? I had a Bible college professor actually say exactly that to me. He said, Luke was not wrong in Acts, but what Luke did was accurately record Peter's inaccurate usage of Joel. Guess what? You might be a heretic. What's happening here, and you'll see it when you look at the passage in the context of the rest of Peter's sermon next week, is he's letting the people know that the final days have been set in motion. See, up until then, there was always something next that was on God's prophetic timetable. As the Old Testament closes, as we look at the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet, and, and you see that there is this prophet that's going to arise, and he's going to be an Elijah type that would come, and he would be a forerunner of the Messiah that happened in John the Baptist. The next thing that was supposed to happen is there would be a Messiah that would be born. Micah talked about that. That happened on Christmas. 
The next thing that would be prophesied is that there would be a Messiah that would die and rise again. It was talked about in Isaiah 53 that happened on Easter. The next thing that would happen is that the Spirit would be poured out. And Peter's saying that just happened. So he's letting the people know there's not a next thing that we're waiting here for, for folks. It's the final days for this reason. There's not a next that we're any longer waiting for. It's the final days for this reason that once the Spirit has been poured out, there's not another event on God's prophetic timetable to take place. The next thing that's going to take place is great tribulation and then the end of days. And then guess what? We get to meet Jesus. So Peter is saying that the final wheel has been set in motion. So what did it do? It gave Peter an urgency for the proclamation of the Gospel. You're going to see next week as we look through Peter's Gospel sermon in Acts 2. I actually thought that I was going to get to that this morning, but the Spirit had different intentions. But the interesting thing is, though I don't believe Peter was wrong in quoting Joel... I do believe that Peter believed that these events were going to occur in his lifetime and could take place at any moment. And that made Peter live with a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency that had been lost on the people that Joel is writing to. That's the whole message of the book of Joel. And what it did is it led to an apathy, which is why Joel had to write the book. And frankly, it's a sense of urgency that's been lost on the American church. And it's led to a sense of apathy. As the demon in C.S. Lewis' tape letters said, we don't have to tell the people that the Gospel is not true. All we have to do is convince them is that there's more time. Peter knew that the days were short and it gave him a sense of urgency to preach the Gospel and the power of the Spirit. Up until then, there was always an end then that people were waiting for. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Spirit. There's no longer an end then, and what's next is not pretty, so this was pressing to Peter. And if you're sitting here and you're still waiting, I just want to plead with you and I want to ask you, what is it that you're waiting for? For me, it was, I want to live my life for me and have my fun, and then I'll become a boring old Christian after I do my thing. And guess what? My fun almost killed me. And my fun slowly began to become not all that fun anymore. Each time I meet somebody who's just decided I'm going to go after fun, and they go and get spanked by the world and they come back, I'm like, all right, it's been a while since I've been there. Has it gotten way more awesome than I remember? I've yet to hear a yes. I've yet to hear, no, it's a blast out there. You're missing it. I mean, like drugging and, and womanizing, that stuff that, that might have gotten old back then, but it's way cooler in the 2010s. And now it just doesn't get old. And it's just always fun. Nobody's ever said that to me. I don't anticipate anybody ever will. So Peter's reason for preaching the Gospel was not just because he knew the days were short. 
He knew that all who called upon the name of the Lord would be saved. And when we return to the Gospel, we're gripped by that fact. And as a matter of fact, we can't be gripped by it any other way than to be driven to the centrality of the Gospel. Because in the Gospel message, we see the heart of the Father, a lovesick Father who gave everything, including His own Son, for the reconciliation of sinners unto Himself. And you know what it does? As we see God's heart and brokenness for the lost, it also makes our hearts broken for the lost. And as you read the fact that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, I just want to ask you, church, does that impact you? Guess what? Do you know who's included in that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Tom's River. Brick Township. Point Pleasant. Bayville. Ocean Township. I mean, all these surrounding areas. If you count up the towns of the people that drive here to this church, it encompasses a driving radius of 750,000 people and by which most conservative estimates would say maybe 20,000 of those know Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a declarative statement. It's a mission statement. And it's a call to action. So as we wrap up, I have a couple of application points to us. We no longer have to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out on the church. The church just needs to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes those who would by nature be cowards and makes them courageous to declare the good news of Jesus. The Spirit empowers the preaching of the Gospel to make it effective unto salvation and to regenerate the hearts of the hearers so that the preaching of the Gospel might be joined by faith of those who would hear it. The Spirit has not called us to play church. He has called us to be ambassadors and stewards of the message of the living God, of the manifold witness of His grace and mercy to a world who needs to hear it. When the Spirit shows up, it's tangible and recognizable, and He moves in demonstrations of power. And last, that power that was at work in Acts 2, through the outpouring of the Spirit and the preaching of the Gospel, is the same power that's at work in Redeemer Fellowship this morning. Do you believe that? I mean, really, do you believe that? Because we could say we believe that. Do you believe that? Like, I, I want to see an army of people who believe that. Because guess what? An army of people that believe that, if 12 of them can change the world, we've got over 200 of them here this morning. You guys could at least change the Jersey Shore. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the power of the gospel. But it's not that you have called those who are powerful. You have called those who are weak by most standards. But you have given us a powerful message, a powerful spirit, a powerful Savior. Thank you that you are still mighty to save all those who would call upon the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.